If you got a Bible, you can start finding Luke chapter two. We're gonna be in Luke two. And uh, man, I am so fired up about what I get to share with you today. I get to talk to you about what is my favorite mystery in the Christian faith. There's a lot of mysteries in our faith. There's things that seem to be paradoxical in our faith. And the thing I get to talk about today is my favorite mystery because it's a mystery that every time I think about it, something happens in my soul. Um, It's one of those mysteries that softens my heart when my heart gets hard and cold to Jesus. And the mystery that we get to talk about today, it's, it's the incarnation, the incarnation. And that term comes from a Latin term that means with flesh or with meat. You, you might've eaten carne asada. That's, that's meat on the grill, right? And when we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, who is spirit, who is eternally equal with the father and the spirit, doing something miraculous and crazy and paradoxical. It's the, it's the moment in history where the son of God actually takes on flesh. He adds to himself that which he was not. He takes on flesh and mysteriously and beautifully, the son of God without ceasing to be God also is 100% man. man, 100% God, and he steps into human history for God's great act of intervention. Now, let me just say a couple of things as we dive into this. Um, The point of doing theology work in the church is not so that we can become theological eggheads and just win trivia questions. Like that's not why we do theology work. The reason we explore theology in the church is because we wanna be people of light and heat, light and heat. We wanna be people with light, meaning... We do theology because we wanna see God as he really is. And we live in a part of the world where there's a lot of people that think that they've rejected the real God and they've just rejected a version of that God that was handed to them that was not the real God of the Bible who sent his son, Jesus. So we wanna be, be people that have light as we think about God. Um, there's people in our church that don't actually know the real Jesus. You, you have a version of Jesus that's sort of a Franken Jesus that you built in your own workshop. And you bolted together a little bit of your church tradition and you bolted together a little bit of Dr. Phil and all kinds of weird different sources. And you've just made this busted up version of Jesus that's not even the real Jesus. And so the reason theology matters is because we want to know God as he is, as he's really revealed himself. If you reject Jesus, may you actually reject the real Jesus and not a weird version of Jesus that's not actually who he is. Now, we we don't just want light though. We also want heat. We want heat. As we look at who God is, we want God, the spirit, to do something in our hearts and our souls where our affection for God, our appetite for God, our pleasure in God, our delight in God actually increases and grows over time. So today, as we talk about the incarnation, this is lofty stuff. And yet it's not lofty stuff, meaning you have to have a PhD to understand it. It's lofty because we're talking about the very essence of the good news of Jesus. So if you got a Bible, you can follow along. We're in Luke chapter two. This is the great intervention in which God steps into human history, starting in verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Um, Part of my job, for the last 13-ish years at Frontline Church has been to participate in interventions. Those interventions usually get put together by people that have a loved one who is walking down a path of destruction, right? A person who, because of addiction and brokenness, is harming themselves and the people around them that they love, And in these interventions, um, loved ones gather together and they warn that person and they love that person enough to say, you're heading in a direction that's really harmful for your soul and harmful for your body and harmful for your family. And we love you enough to actually make ourselves available to serve you. And what's been fascinating to me in all of these interventions throughout the years is just the limitations of the interveners. Right? Like every time I go to an intervention, I'm also aware that I kind of need an intervention myself. Right? Like I'm aware of my weaknesses and my sin and my brokenness. And I'm also aware that no matter how well intended we are, when we try to intervene, we don't really know what it's like to be that person and to walk in that person's shoes. Can I, can I get an amen? And so there's these limitations that we bring to the table. Now, what's happening in this text that we just read is not just a human intervention. It's not just a couple of people getting together to try to warn a friend about the trajectory of their life. What's happening in this story is a cosmic intervention. And I say cosmic because what's happening in this text is that God himself is intervening in human history because we as people are all hopelessly addicted to our idols. We're hopelessly wired for self-destruction. We are hopelessly wired to harm ourselves and the people that we love. We are people that have gone so astray that the intervention that was needed was not just sort of friends and family pulling us aside and having a talk about rehab. The intervention that humanity needed actually necessitated God himself stepping into history to bring rescue. And the thing that's so crazy about this intervention is that if you set me down and I knew nothing about the Bible, And you were like, hey man, um, there's a God who's good and there's a world that's full of evil. And the evil of the world is kind of like marching across the land, deconstructing everything that God made beautiful and pure. And the evil is alive and active, not just in creation and in society, but it's also in human hearts. And God wants to deal with that evil. He wants to push back that that darkness. He wants to overthrow the, the chains of sin and death. 
how is that great God gonna do it? I think my plan would probably be like some form of a shock and awe campaign, right? Like God is just gonna pull back the veil of his glory and he's just gonna go blast on evil and the faces of demons are gonna be melted off like Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and God's just gonna, he's just gonna go, he's just gonna go full court press and flex his muscle against darkness and fix everything. That's probably what most of us, if we hadn't read this story, would think God would do. And yet what God does in this text is so different. His intervention is not a shock and awe campaign. The beginning of God's intervention to rescue this world from darkness is actually the most humble thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. It's covered in humility. It's dripping with gentleness. It's God actually showing up in a way that none of us would have expected him to show up. Instead of shock and awe that would have not just blasted external evil, it would have ended you and me. Instead of confronting evil like that, God shows up in humility because it was fitting since pride is the source of the unmaking of creation that God would use humility as the source of his redeeming of creation. See, here's what happened in the beginning in crazy hubris and unbelievable human arrogance. What we did is we said to God, we actually want your job. Our first parents were tempted with the temptation that we all feel, even if we don't know how to articulate it, um, you can be like God. Meaning there's ways in which you're not designed to be like God, but you can pretend to be like God and you actually don't need God to be fulfilled and to experience eternal life. And in a movement of crazy pride, they turn from God and to themselves. And the root of that pride, the root of that pride grew into everything that's broken in this world. C.S. Lewis put it like this. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. St. Augustine said, pride is the root. It's the root or the beginning of all sin. So here's what happens if you look at this world that's really messed up and yet beautiful. We just remembered the anniversary of Sandy Hook, the Sandy Hook massacre, right? Like you don't have to go very far to see evidences of just how broken this world is. In this moment, there's things happening on this planet that anybody in their right mind would point at and say, hey, that's just pure evil. What's happening there is evil. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, We're not supposed to live in a society where powerful men sexually prey on women and then cover it up because of their position. That's evil. There's wickedness there. We're not supposed to live in a world where babies die of treatable diseases. Amen. And everywhere you look, there's the fingerprints of evil. There's all kinds of deconstruction that's happening around us. There's the dehumanizing of humanity. And if you wanna know where all that stuff started, you trace it back to a first moment. And the genesis of all of that was unbelievable arrogance in which human beings substituted themselves for God. It brought death, it brought decay, it brought everything that's busted up all around you and all around me and in you and in me. The source of it was pride. 
And so God in his campaign to redeem and to restore all things for his glory, God in his campaign to push back darkness and to have a new heavens and a new earth, he launches that campaign in Bethlehem in an act of breathtaking humility. It's a story. It's a story of God bringing redemption through the humility of his son, Jesus Christ. And all the supporting characters in this intervention, they're all just stories of humility. Um, If you study the story of Mary and you don't go to the Catholic error of sort of praying to Mary or the Protestant error of just ignoring Mary, and you just try to get a biblical feel for how Mary fits into the story of redemption, what you find is that she's worthy of so much honor and respect because of the deep humility of this woman. Mary was a poor teenage girl in a culture that didn't value the poor or women. She couldn't have voted. She had no rights. She couldn't testify in a court of law. She was at the bottom of a society that was enslaved to Rome. She had nothing going for according to earthly wisdom, power, or wealth. And God chooses little Mary to actually be the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ in his humility intervention. And then Joseph, right? Like um, who would you select to be the stepdad of Jesus? Right? Who would you pick, man? How would you like go about selecting a good stepdad for Jesus? How, how am I gonna pick somebody to be the stepdad that's gonna teach Jesus to be a man in this world? Well, God, the father picks a guy named Joseph who is not wealthy, who's a blue collar guy who can barely pay his bills and keep his family fed. And when it comes time for the uh, sacrifice to be made upon the birth of Jesus in the temple, like he's so without money, he has to give the sacrifice of the poorest people among Israel because he's got nothing. He's just a nobody, man. Like you would pass Joseph and you wouldn't even notice him. And then you've got the shepherds and um, the shepherds are amazing because they always look super cute in our nativities, right? Like the shepherds are cute. So cute. Uh, my my mother-in-law has a nativity problem. Um, we're, we're thinking about staging an intervention. She's, she's going on like 47 nativities at this point. There's a nativity in every square foot of her home right now. And, and her nativities all have shepherds and the shepherds are always upstanding good men dressed nicely and they're shiny. Okay, the real shepherds in Jesus' day, they actually belonged to a whole class of people that were called sinners. And it was not just because all people sinned. They were called sinners because they were just ceremonially unclean and outside of the religious life of Israel. Meaning they were people that would never be welcomed in the temple. So think of people, think of people in our city that would not be welcomed in most churches. Those were the shepherds. They smelled bad. They lived outside. They like camped for a living and hung out with animals. These are not dudes with killer hygiene. These are guys that had rough hands and rough lives and used rough language. They weren't religious guys. They weren't Sunday school teachers. And God's like, hey, you know who I'm gonna pick to announce the birth of my son to you? I'm gonna do it with the shepherds. I like those guys. I'm gonna go after the shepherds. And then you get to the, to the wise men and the wise men, like, we don't even know what to do with these cats, right? Like, who are these guys? They're so bizarre. They're like astrologers in the pagan East, 
and they're studying the stars and somehow they're like, oh, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Let's go to Jerusalem. It's just the weirdest, it's the weirdest part of the whole Bible. It's like, who are these guys? Where did they come from? Though they were wealthy guys and educated guys, here's what's crazy about the shepherds. God's demonstrating the humility of the incarnation because they were total outsiders. They weren't ethnic Jews. They were pagans from a pagan land. Do you think maybe they had some weird theology? (laughs) Probably so. Dudes that study stars to try to find the fulfillment of prophecies tend to be a little weird. No offense. (laughs) These are strange cats and God's like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna include these guys because I'm actually gonna redeem and rescue the pagan nations. I'm gonna bring them out of paganism to the light of Jesus. I'm gonna bring those guys into the story. Everybody around Jesus, every bit of the supporting cast in God's intervention tell us the story of humility that can unmake the power of pride and sin. And and nothing compares to Jesus. The center of the story is Jesus, the son of God that takes on flesh. Here's what the Bible says about his humility in Philippians chapter two. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We love rags to riches stories as Americans, don't we? It's like my favorite movies are all rags to riches stories. I love those stories somebody in obscurity that fights their way out of whatever situation that they're in and they pull themselves up through dedication and discipline and usually some good sports training montages, right? Like those are my movies, Rocky One, that's a win. It's a win. Well, that's not the story of Jesus. It's not a rags to riches story. It's a riches to rags story. What happens with Jesus is not the story of God selecting a really great teacher and adopting him into his family as quote unquote God. What happens with Jesus is that the eternal son of God, who's of the same essence and power as the father and the spirit, the word who created everything out of nothing, didn't grasp equality with God, meaning he didn't cling to it like a, like a jealous teenager afraid of losing a girlfriend. He emptied himself. He took on flesh. He humbled himself that he might become poor for our sakes. Second Corinthians eight says this, you know how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. In the incarnation, here's what's happening. The son of God is taking on flesh. He's humbling himself. He's leaving the country of heaven. He's laying down the radiance of his glory. He's obscuring it by taking on flesh without ceasing to be God. This is the mystery of the incarnation. 100% God, 100% man being born in the most humble circumstances to live in the most humble circumstances, to die the most humble death that's ever been died so that in his breathtaking humility, we could actually receive riches. Jesus was born in humility. 
I don't know how to even wrap my mind around the reality that he that created Mary gestated in her womb for nine months. I don't know what to do with that other than to worship. The one that sustained everything in creation according to the word of his power, humbled himself to the point of needing nourishment from Mary's breast as a baby. The one who is the radiance, the radiance that you can't even look at as a sinful human being without having your face melted off. He humbles himself to have his diaper changed, to grow hungry and tired, to grow as a human being, to actually endure being a teenager. We don't have a lot of rules here at Frontline that are non-biblical rules, but I think we should make one. If you're one of those people that gives teenagers the advice, these are the best days of your life. You should shut up and never speak again to a teenager. Like that's the most cruel thing you could say to a teenager. It's the worst. Every time a teenager hears that, they're just like, oh man, life sucks. That is terrible. So bad. You mean it's not going to get any better? Jesus humbles himself. He endures being an infant, being cared for, being a teenager with all those hormones and pimples and difficulties. Working a trade. Hey, if you're a man in our church or a woman in our church, with calluses on your hands and, and you don't really have a ton of options because you've got limited education and you just do backbreaking work to try to make ends meet. Man, that's what Jesus did. And where was he born? Like he wasn't born in a palace or even a hospital. He was born in a manger. <laughs> Back to my mother-in-law's nativities. If we really wanted to make our nativities a little more accurate, we would sprinkle a little ant fresh animal manure on them because they're not real nativities are not sterile places. I know this is frontline downtown. We got some urban folks. So let me put it into the, let me use the words of Martin Luther. Do you know what a stable smell like? Frontline downtown is like, nope, <laughs> I do not. Not a lot of stables in my neighborhood. So let me let you in on a little secret. They smell like animal poo. You're welcome. Do you know what stables smell like? You know what the family would have smelled like after the birth when they went into the city? If they were standing next to you, how would you have felt about them and regarded them? That's just crazy humility. The manger is probably a hole. It's probably a little cave where animals were kept at night to protect them from predators. It would have been covered with animal feces and animal urine. It would have smelled awful in there. It wasn't a cutesy manger. Jesus was born among filth, born to a peasant mother and a blue collar carpenter stepdad to a nation that was one of the least nations on planet earth that was enslaved by Rome. And he does it all not to divorce Christmas from Good Friday, but he does it all to lead to Good Friday. And I know that there's Christians that are like Christmas Christians and then there's Good Friday Easter Christians. And there's a problem with that. And the problem is the Bible because you can't pick between Christmas and Good Friday Easter. It's all about 
the great plan of God to in his unbelievable humility, redeem and rescue what we've broken through our pride. J.I. Packer put it like this, for the son of God to empty himself and become poor meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual, even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. Here's what blows my mind about the incarnation. It's not just that he came to intervene in human history. It's that the means of his intervention demanded not a shock and awe campaign in which he just blasts all evil with his undiluted, pure glory shining forth. Because if he did that, you and me would be toast. Because the evil's not just out there, it's in you and me too. But in his mercy... He takes on flesh to go to the cross so that all of our sin could be put on him. He that knew no sin became sin. Our worship of false things, money and power and sex, our greed, our racism, our pride, all of our lust, everything that's busted up about humanity, it all gets put on Jesus. He feels the terrible weight of it and then he's crushed under the wrath that you and me deserved so that we can actually have a way. How does his poverty make us rich? Well, let let me give you a few ways as we close this. One, it humbles us. It humbles us. Scripture says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And that's pretty sobering because you and me have a default posture of pride. We have a default posture of pride. It's not just that some people are prideful people and other people are just born naturally humble. We're all born, we're all born with pride. And sometimes that pride looks more like insecurity and sometimes it looks more like just pure arrogance. But either way, it's a self-centered way of seeing the world in which we think we're sufficient. And in that pride, in that pride, God's active resistance is moving against us. So how on earth can God grant us grace? Well, here's what happens. When you hear the story of our savior, the spirit of the living God does something in a human heart to lower it. Here's what, here's what Christmas actually tells you. I'll put it in the words of some old pastors I respect and appreciate. Here's what Christmas really does. It tells you clearly you are way more jacked up than what you thought. And I get that in this cultural moment, especially in this part of the city with beautiful places going in and all kinds of cool cultural options. Like we pretty much feel like we're okay. And the message is you're okay. And sometimes we get really quiet and shut down our devices and we're like, maybe I'm not okay. But for the most part, we can medicate ourselves into thinking we're okay. And culture tells us we're okay. And school told us we're okay. The message of the gospel says, hey man, you're like really not okay. How not okay are you? You're so not okay that for God to bring you hope in life, he had to be born of a virgin, take on flesh and die in your place. That's how not okay you are. It's, it's humbling. You couldn't get to God. So he came to you. But it's not just that you're not okay. It's also that you're loved more than you ever dreamed. You're way more messed up than what you thought, but you're more loved than you could ever imagine. God did this to go after you. This was God's heart put on display for you and for me, that he would become poor, despised, 
rejected, abused, mocked, murdered so that we could have life. It lifts us because of his grace. I love what Spurgeon said. He was a pastor in England, preached a lot, wrote a lot. He was a good, good church planning missionary. Here's what he said. Oh, but my heart is not a fit place for Christ. I say that pretty often. Oh, but my heart is not a fit place for Christ. Nor was the manger a place fit for him. Yet there he laid. Oh, but I've been such a sinner. I feel as if my heart had been a den of beasts and devils. Well, the manger had been a place where beasts had fed. Have you room for him? Never mind what the past has been. He can forget and forgive. It mattereth not even the present state if thou mournest it. If thou hast but room for Christ, he will come and be your guest. Here's what he's saying. It's so right. Jesus getting laid in a manger with the stench of animals is Jesus saying to us, hey, you know what? I am glorious, but I'm not aloof. I want you. I want you. And yeah, your heart's full of all kinds of stuff that's unclean, but I actually through my spirit want to dwell there. And a crazy thing is going to happen when I dwell there, not through dead religion or you trying to clean yourself up or doing another New Year's resolution that's not going to work and that's just going to pack out the YMCA so the regulars can't get a workout in. Actually, his plan to clean you up is that in his cleanness, he's actually going to touch your dirtiness and his grace is going to do something new inside of you. In the old covenant, if something was dirty and something was clean and that which was dirty touched what was clean, what was clean became dirty. In the new covenant, that which is clean is Jesus. And when he touches someone or something that's dirty, he makes it clean. He wants you and he wants me and he wants to send us. Christmas is about mission. It's the end of thinking that we're okay without him. Here's how Tim Keller put it. Christmas is the end of snobbishness. It's the end of thinking, oh, that kind of person. Yes, because in Christmas, Jesus is the first missionary and the best missionary and all humanity. We're all those kinds of people to God. And yet he didn't regard us like that. He came after us. Hey, Frontline Downtown, I want you guys to flex your gospel ambition in 2018. Think of the city that God's brought you to, that he's planted you in. Think of all the missionaries that are a part of our church. What would it look like in 2018 if we really saw that there's no such thing as those kinds of people. There's only people that Jesus came to pursue through his life, death, and resurrection. What would that look like for our neighborhoods? What would that look like for the way that we think about different demographics and cultures and pockets in our city? What would that mean like for the way that you conduct business where you work? What would it look like for us as a church to just let the story of Christmas make us crazy radical missionaries where we wanna go to people that haven't heard about Jesus yet? The message is not, I bring you good news of great joy for some people. That's not the message. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, the religious and the irreligious, the liberal and the conservative, the wealthy, the poor, despite wherever you've been, the message of Jesus is there's hope. I want Frontline Downtown to be a beacon where that light, that hope just compels you guys, not because you're trying to get God to love you, but because he loves you so much. 
to not let this church become about our comfort or our club or our clique or our thing that we maintain. I want this to all be leveraged for people that don't yet know Jesus. I'll end with this. In addition to all these great things, his poverty makes us rich as the answer to the problem of sin and suffering. See, through pastoral ministry and life and things that happened growing up and traveling to different countries, if it wasn't for the incarnation of Jesus, God taking on flesh, there is no way I would believe or worship or want to know God. Here's why. Without the incarnation, there's only three logical conclusions about God. Conclusion one, he's harsh and doesn't care. Sandy Hook. Hundreds of thousands of babies dying from diarrhea on our planet. Like we can treat that. We can fix that. Genocide. Human pain. Even animal pain. So many things that you look at the world and it's like so busted up. Christmas didn't happen. If there is a God, he's harsh and he doesn't care. Or option two, he's just absent. He's just absent. Like he's the God of the deist. He just made everything. He started the ball rolling through whatever means he spoke and boom. And then he's like, good luck. Good luck. Maybe I'll see you down the road in a couple millennia but he's not really active or involved. Or maybe, maybe he's just the fairy tale crutch for people too terrified to stare down the face of a meaningless universe and keep going on. But in Christmas, God's answer to suffering and evil, his response to suffering and evil is not to stay aloof from it. It's not to avoid it. It's not to turn his back and pretend it's not there. His plan for unworking all that pride and evil have worked in our world is that he actually takes on flesh to suffer everything that we have suffered. He takes on flesh to drink the cup of sorrow and suffering that human beings have been drinking since the beginning. He shares in our suffering and he does it with power so that through his sharing in our suffering, we could share in his life by grace through faith. Tim Keller writes, God so hates suffering and evil that he was willing to come into it and become enmeshed in it. What began in Bethlehem 2000 years ago will culminate one day in Christ returning with that display of shock and all power that will finally burn up all that remains of evil and death. And yet, what patience he has with us that that day has not yet come. What kindness to us that in his patience and in his gentleness, the gospel is the message of hope that we can believe in Jesus, not to get a free pass from not drinking the cup of suffering, but we can believe in Jesus knowing that in his suffering is our redemption and our hope and our future and our life and our joy and ultimately our resurrection.